Book Two, Sections Four through Six of King Cole. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. King Cole by Upton Sinclair. Book Two, The Serfs of King Cole, Section Four. The talk went on. Wishing to draw the old man out, Hal spoke of various troubles of the miners, and at last he suggested that the remedy might be found in a union. Edstrom's dark eyes studied him, and then turned to Mary. "'Joe's all right,' said the girl quickly. "'You can trust him.' Edstrom made no direct answer to this, but remarked that he had once been in a strike. He was a marked man now, and could only stay in the camp so long as he attended strictly to his own affairs. The part he had played in the big strike had never been forgotten. The bosses had let him work again, partly because they had needed him at a rush time, and partly because the pit boss happened to be a personal friend. "'Tell him about the big strike,' said Mary. "'He's new in this district.' The old man had apparently accepted Mary's word for Hal's good faith, for he began to narrate those terrible events which were a whispered tradition of the camps. There had been a mighty effort of ten thousand slaves for freedom, and it had been crushed with utter ruthlessness. Ever since these mines had been started, the operators had controlled the local powers of government, and now, in the emergency, they had brought in the state militia as well and used it frankly to drive the strikers back to work. They had seized the leaders and active men, and thrown them into jail without trial or charges. When the jails would hold no more, they kept some two hundred in an open stockade, called a bullpen, and finally they loaded them into freight cars, took them at night out of the state, and dumped them off in the midst of the desert without food or water. John Edstrom had been one of these men. He told how one of his sons had been beaten and severely injured in jail, and how another had been kept for weeks in a damp cellar, so that he had come out crippled with rheumatism for life. The officers of the state militia had done these things, and when some of the local authorities were moved to protest, the militia had arrested them. Even the judges of the civil courts had been forbidden to sit, under threat of imprisonment. "'To hell with the Constitution!' had been the word of the general in command. His subordinate had made famous the saying, "'No habeas corpus! We'll give them post-mortems!' Tom Olson had impressed Hal with his self-control, but this old man made an even deeper impression upon him. As he listened, he became humble, touched with awe. Incredible as it might seem, when John Edstrom talked about his cruel experiences, it was without bitterness in his voice, and apparently without any in his heart. Here, in the midst of want and desolation, with his family broken and scattered, and the wolf of starvation at his door, he could look back upon the past without hatred of those who had ruined him. Nor was this because he was old and feeble and had lost the spirit of revolt. It was because he had studied economics, and convinced himself that it was an evil system which blinded men's eyes and poisoned their souls. A better day was coming, he said, when this evil system would be changed, and it would be possible for men to be merciful to one another. At this point in the conversation, 
Mary Burke gave voice once more to her corroding despair. How could things ever be changed? The bosses were mean-hearted, and the men were cowards and traitors. That left nobody but God to do the changing, and God had left things as they were for such a long time. Hal was interested to hear how Edstrom dealt with this attitude. Mary, he said, did you ever read about ants in Africa? No, said she. They travel in long columns, millions and millions of them, and when they come to a ditch, the front ones fall in, and more and more of them on top till they fill up the ditch, and the rest cross over. We are ants, Mary. No matter how many go in, cried the girl, none will ever get across. There's no bottom to the ditch. He answered, That's more than any ant can know, Mary. All they know is to go in. They cling to each other's bodies, even in death. They make a bridge, and the rest go over. I'll step one side, she declared fiercely. I'll not throw meself away. You may step one side, answered the other, but you'll step back into line again. I know you better than you know yourself, Mary. There was silence in the little cabin. The winds of an early fall shrilled outside, and life suddenly seemed to howl a stern and merciless thing. He had thought in his youthful fervor it would be thrilling to be a revolutionist, but to be an ant, one of millions and millions, to perish in a bottomless ditch, that was something a man could hardly bring himself to face. He looked at the bowed figure of this white-haired toiler, vague in the feeble lamplight, and found himself thinking of Rembrandt's painting, The Visit of Emmaus. The ill-lighted room in the dirty tavern, and the two ragged men, struck dumb by the glow of light about the forehead of their table companion. It was not fantastic to imagine a glow of light about the forehead of this soft-voiced old man. "'I never had any hope it would come in my time,' the old man was saying gently. "'I did use to hope my boys might see it. But now I'm not sure even of that. But in all my life I never doubted that some day the working people will cross over to the promised land. They'll no longer be slaves, and what they make won't be wasted by idlers. And take it from one who knows, Mary, for a working man or woman not to have that faith is to have lost the reason for living. Hal decided that it would be safe to trust this man, and told him of his check weighman plan. "'We only want your advice,' he explained, remembering Mary's warning. "'Your sick wife,' but the old man answered sadly, "'She's almost gone, and I'll soon be following. What little strength I have left might as well be used for the cause.'" End of Section 4 Section 5 This business of conspiracy was grimly real to men whose living came out of coal. But how, even at the most serious moments, continued to find in it the thrill of romance. He had read stories of revolutionists, and of the police who hunted them. That such excitements were to be had in Russia he knew, but if anyone had told him they could be had in his own free America, 
within a few hours' journey of his home city and his college town, he could not have credited the statement. The evening after his visit to Edstrom, Hal was stopped on the street by his boss. Encountering him suddenly, Hal started, like a pickpocket who runs into a policeman. "'Hello, kid,' said the pit boss. "'Hello, Mr. Stone,' was the reply. "'I want to talk to you,' said the boss. "'All right, sir,' and then, under his breath, "'He's got me.' "'Come up to my house,' said Stone, and Hal followed, feeling as if handcuffs were already on his wrists. "'Say,' said the man as they walked, "'I thought you were going to tell me if you'd heard any talk.' "'I haven't heard any, sir.' "'Well,' continued Stone, "'you want to get busy. "'There's sure to be kickers in every coal camp.' And deep within, Hal drew a sigh of relief. It was a false alarm. They came to the boss's house, and he took a chair on the piazza and motioned Hal to take another. They sat in semi-darkness, and Stone dropped his voice as he began. "'What I want to talk to you about now is something else, this election.' "'Election, sir?' Didn't you know there was one? The congressman in this district died, and there's a special election three weeks from next Tuesday. I see, sir, and Hal chuckled inwardly. He would get the information which Tom Olson had recommended to him. You ain't heard any talk about it? inquired the pit boss. Nothing at all, sir. I never pay much attention to politics. It ain't in my line. Well, that's the way I like to hear a miner talk said the pit-boss, with heartiness. If they all had sense enough to leave politics to the politicians, they'd be a sight better off. What they need is to tend to their own jobs. Yes, sir, agreed Hal, meekly. Like I had to tend them mules if I didn't want to get the colic. The boss smiled appreciatively. You've got more sense than most of them. If you'll stand by me, there'll be a chance for you to move up in the world. "'Thank you, Mr. Stone,' said Hal. "'Give me a chance.' "'Well, now, here's this election. "'Every year they send us a bunch of campaign money to handle. "'A bit of it might come your way.' "'I could use it, I reckon,' said Hal, brightening visibly. "'What is it you want?' "'There was a pause while Stone puffed on his pipe. "'He went on in a businesslike manner. "'What I want is somebody to feel things out a bit "'and let me know the situation.' I thought it better not to use the men that generally work for me, but somebody that wouldn't be suspected. Down in Sheridan and Pedro, they say the Democrats are making a big stir, and the company's worried. I suppose you know the GFC is Republican. I've heard so. You might think a congressman don't have much to do with us way off in Washington, but it has a bad effect to have him campaigning, telling the men the company's abusing them. So I'd like you just to kind of circulate a bit and start the men on politics and see if any of them have been listening to this McDougal talk. McDougal's this here Democrat, you know. And I want to find out whether they've been sending in literature to this camp or have any agents here. You see, they claim the right to come in and make speeches and all that sort of thing. North Valley's an incorporated town, so they've got the law on their side in a way and if we shut them out, they make a howl in the papers, and it looks bad. So we have to get ahead of them in quiet ways. Fortunately, there ain't any hall in the camp for them to meet in, 
and we've made a local ordinance against meetings on the street. If they try to bring in circulars, something has to happen to them before they get distributed, see? I see, said Hal. He thought of Tom Olson's propaganda literature. We'll pass the word out. It's the Republican the company wants elected. And you be on the lookout and see how they take it in the camp. That sounds easy enough, said Hal. But tell me, Mr. Stone, why do you bother? Do so many of these WAPs have votes? It ain't the WAPs so much. We get them naturalized on purpose. They vote our way for a glass of beer. But the English-speaking men, or the foreigners that's been here too long and got too big for their breeches, they're the ones we got to watch. If they get to talkin' politics, they don't stop there. The first thing you know, they're listening to union agitators and wantin' to run the camp. Oh, yes, I see, said Hal, and wondered if his voice sounded right. But the pit boss was concerned with his own troubles. As I told Cy Adams the other day, what I'm lookin' for is fellows that talk some new lingo, one that nobody will ever understand. But I suppose that would be too easy. There's no way to keep them from learnin' some English. Hal decided to make use of this opportunity to perfect his education. Surely, Mr. Stone, he remarked, you don't have to count any votes if you don't want to. Well, I'll tell you, replied Stone. It's a question of the easiest way to manage things. When I was superintendent over to Happy Gulch, we didn't waste no time on politics. The company was democratic at that time, and when election night come, we wrote down 400 votes for the Democratic candidates. But the first thing we knew, a bunch of fellers was taken into town and got to swear they'd voted the Republican ticket in our camp. The Republican papers were full of it, and some fool judge ordered a recount, and we had to get busy overnight and mark up a new lot of ballots. It gave us a lot of bother. The pit boss laughed, and Hal joined him discreetly. So you see, you have to learn to manage. If there's votes for the wrong candidate in your camp, the fact gets out, and if the returns is too one-sided, there's a lot of grumbling. There's plenty of bosses that don't care, but I learned my lesson that time, and I got my own method. That is, not to let any opposition start. See? Yes, I see. Maybe a mine boss has got no right to meddle in politics, but there's one thing he's got to say about, and that is who works in his mine. It's the easiest thing to weed out, weed out. Hal never forgot the motion of beefy hands with which Alec Stone illustrated these words. As he went on, the tones of his voice did not seem so good-natured as usual. The fellows that don't want to vote my way can go somewhere else to do their voting. That's all I got to say on politics. There was a brief pause while Stone puffed on his pipe. Then it may have occurred to him that it was not necessary to go into so much detail in breaking in a political recruit. When he resumed, it was in a good-natured tone of dismissal. That's what you do, kid. Tomorrow you get a sprained wrist, so you can't work for a few days, and that'll give you a chance to bum round and hear what the men are saying. Meantime, I'll see you get your wages. That sounds all right, said Hal, but showing only a small part of his satisfaction. The pit boss rose from his chair and knocked the ashes from his pipe. 
Mind you, I want the goods. I've got other fellows working, and I'm comparing them. For all you know, I may have somebody watching you. Yes, said Hal, and grinned cheerfully. I'll not fail to bear that in mind. End of Section 5 Section 6 The first thing Hal did was to seek out Tom Olson and narrate this experience. The two of them had a merry time over it. "'I'm the favorite of a boss now,' laughed Hal. But the organizer became suddenly serious. "'Be careful what you do for that fellow.' "'Why?' "'He might use it on you later on. One of the things they try to do if you make any trouble for them is to prove that you took money from them, or tried to. But he won't have any proofs. That's my point. Don't give him any. If Stone says you've been playing the political game for him, then some fellow might remember that you did ask him about politics. So don't have any marked money on you. Hal laughed. Money doesn't stay on me very long these days, but what shall I say if he asks me for a report? You'd better put your job right through, Joe, so that he won't have time to ask for any report. All right, was the reply. But just the same, I'm going to get all the fun there is, being the favorite of a boss. And so, early the next morning, when Hal went to his work, he proceeded to sprain his wrist. He walked about in pain, to the great concern of old Mike, and when finally he decided that he would have to lay off, Mike followed him halfway to the shaft, giving him advice about hot and cold cloths. Leaving the old Slovak to struggle along as best he could alone, Hal went out to bask in the wonderful sunshine of the upper world, and the still more wonderful sunshine of a boss's favor. First he went to his room at Reminitsky's, and tied a strip of old shirt about his wrist, and a clean handkerchief on top of that. By this symbol he was entitled to the freedom of the camp and the sympathy of all men, and so he sallied forth. Strolling towards the tipple of number one, he encountered a wiry, quick-moving little man, with restless black eyes and a lean, intelligent face. He wore a pair of common miner's jumpers, but even so he was not to be taken for a working man. Everything about him spoke of authority. "'Morning, Mr. Cartwright,' said Hal. "'Good morning,' replied the superintendent. Then, with a glance at Hal's bandage, "'You hurt?' "'Yes, sir, just a bit of sprain, but I thought I'd better lay off.' "'Been to the doctor?' "'No, sir, I don't think it's that bad.' "'You'd better go. You never know how bad a sprain is.' "'Right, sir,' said Hal. Then, as the superintendent was passing, "'Do you think, Mr. Cartwright, that MacDougall stands any chance of being elected?' "'I don't know,' replied the other, surprised. "'I hope not. You aren't going to vote for him, are you?' "'Oh, no, I'm a Republican, born that way. But I wondered if you'd heard any MacDougall talk.' "'Well, I'm hardly the one that would hear it. You take an interest in politics?' "'Yes, sir, in a way. In fact, that's how I came to get this wrist. "'How's that, in a fight?' "'No, sir, but you see, Mr. Stone wanted me to feel out sentiment in the camp, "'and he told me I'd better sprain my wrist and lay off.' 
The super, after staring at Hal, could not keep from laughing. Then he looked about him. You want to be careful talking about such things. I thought I could surely trust the superintendent, said Hal dryly. The other measured him with his keen eyes, and Hal, who was getting the spirit of political democracy, took the liberty of returning the gaze. "'You're a wide-awake young fellow,' said Cartwright, at last. "'Learn the ropes here, and make yourself useful, and I'll see you're not passed over.' "'All right, sir. Thank you. "'Maybe you'll be made an election clerk this time. That's worth three dollars a day, you know.' "'Very good, sir,' and Hal put on his smile again. "'They tell me you're the mayor of North Valley.' "'I am.' "'And the Justice of the Peace is a clerk in your store. "'Well, Mr. Cartwright, if you need a President of the Board of Health or a dog-catcher, "'I'm your man, as soon, that is, as my wrist gets well.' "'And so Hal went on his way. "'Such joshing on the part of a buddy was, of course, absurdly presumptuous. "'The superintendent stood looking after him with a puzzled frown upon his face.' End of section 6